welcome back to You're Not Special. I'm absolutely pumped to bring to you today's episode, which is all about autism, uh, as it's something I feel very passionate about and I feel like the world has ever so much to learn about. So our first official podcast guest isn't actually a guest after all, and he needs no introduction, but we will do it anyway. The man, the myth, the legend, the catalyst for WeFlex existing, Jackson Trout. Thank you for being here, even Anytime. though you're a co-host and you have to be. Anytime. There we go. You may not be paid, you'll still have to be here. you still have to be But we thank I, you nonetheless. I know that. I know that too, all too well. <laughs> just need to get that sweet ad money, then we can pay. <laughs> just, just give me the money, Tom. <laughs> Everyone's famous last words. Um, let's start by having you talk to us a little bit about your weight loss journey. Okay, well, uh, last year, around August of 2021, uh, I've actually been writing about this in my uh, in the blog, the WeFlex blog, so you can check it out for yourself if you want a more in-depth, you know, uh, you know, uh, account of it. But basically, last year, um, Tom wagered me $10,000 <laughs> that I could... Joking. I know, I know, I know. But the thing is, I... My response was also a joke, a counter joke. Anyway, he, he wagered me $10,000 to see if I could lose over 10 kilos by the end of the year, which gave me about like... Four-ish months. Four, three months tops. And I thought to myself, challenge accepted. Because I thought to myself, it'd be kind of funny to see him like get nervous, see that, oh crap, I gotta pay him. No, like apparently my brotherly love trying to help you get fit didn't influence you at all. At 10 Gs? No, no, no. It, it, was, more, it was more spite, if anything. <laughs> Anyway, so um, yeah, so I so that so the day we we I made that you know I took him up on that wager, I weighed myself and I was about one hundred and thirteen kilos overweight. So I thought, okay, I gotta get down to a one hundred three because I'll be officially ten kilos. So you know, I, I planned out. I thought to myself, okay, how do I do this? How do I achieve this? What's a good effective strategy so that I can you know lose weight, exercise, but not and be manageable. And not like be so intense and so arduous that like you get you get tired and get frustrated or just like lose interest quickly. Because you know, uh, as my brother would say, uh, long term uh, consistency beats short term intensity, and that is a truism if there ever was one. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so um, I began like planning out and mapping out what I was going to do, and I began putting to effect. It took a while for me to really begin seeing the, uh, the weight begin to drop, and that's only because I added in a, uh, a consistent, everyday 30 minutes on the bike, on an exercise bike. And it wasn't so much just being on an exercise bike, it's like, I gotta do 30 minutes, but I have to reach a certain calorie goal. Because you know, on, on a certain exercise bikes, you can actually kind of tell like how many calories you've lost. Benchmark you have to reach. Yeah. Originally, I began with 120 calories. I have to get, I have to get, I have to get to that number before 30 minutes. It's like one quarter of an Oreo or something, isn't it? <laughs> something like that. <laughs> hey, 130, uh, 100, uh, 120 calories by like, 30 minutes, and that's just on the machine because who knows what like it actually is, you know. So I did that every day onwards. And I, you know, I kept like, it was like, you know, it didn't take any time out of my day, half an hour on the bike, get a nice, get puffy, get sweaty, 
feels good, that means you're doing something. If you're getting sweat, because that's because I think somebody once said that uh, sweat is your the tears of your fat as you burn it, you burn it alive, or something like that. <laughs> I kind of like very morbid way of referring to it, but I kind of like it. <laughs> so uh, I began doing that, and I also began like you know being better with my eating, you know saving up money by not going out every night, and you know my eating much healthier, and I began noticing real results. Like I was losing weight more and more often. I was like, like before it would be like I'll be stuck and just on one weight where like I, I'd lose one kilo before I began the intensive program. It'd be like, okay, I lost one kilo, but by the next week I regained it and back forth and forth, like yo-yoing, zigzagging back and forth. This way, I really just naturally, by new exercise program, I just really saw just results. Like every week, and even half week, I began losing a kilo and again and again and again, and it was just dropping. Like it was like, you know, I was 113 to 112, 111, 110, 9, 8, 7. It was like a countdown clock, and I thought, oh God, this is gonna be easy. <laughs> I'm gonna yeah, I will be getting that ten thousand in no time, and like really have to like put my brother's feet to the fire as, as a means of like psychologically tormenting him, saying, "Hey, you promised, Tom. You promised." Don't remember any of this, but continue to act with fantasy. <laughs> anyway, yeah, and you know, and by I think it was November. I can't quite remember. I have to look up the exact times, but I do remember that around before the end of the year. So it only been like, I think like maybe four or four months altogether. I had eventually dropped down to 103. And it was a sense of accomplishment that I really kind of felt good about. Cause I thought, oh wow, this was much easier than I thought it would. Cause one thing I always had the idea of, like ever since I was a teenager and such, cause I've always had a bit of problems with my weight and such. I always kind of imagined like dieting and exercising being like, what I think in a weird way like media kind of presents it as like as oh god it's hell of like you have to eat like nothing like raw vegetables or you have to like you know be entirely sweaty every day or just look it looks like absolute hell and yes you internalize it that idea for a while for for, for as long as you can but when you actually get into it and you actually find an exercise program that works you don't notice it Mm-hmm. And it really, it felt manageable, it felt good. And now I know that if I ever need to lose more weight again, I know exactly what I have to do. Because I know what works and I just have to stick to it. And you're saying that that's consistency? Yes, yeah, consistency. Being being a few things every day, being very consistent about it, and you will eventually see results. Now, I should, argue, I should point out that this was j- happening during the uh, New South Wales lockdowns of 2021. And so uh, we weren't working or really going anywhere. We couldn't That's even right. go to the you're gym. My work, you're my, my visiting buddy. Remember you were allowed to have one person who yeah. could go to your house at a time? Yeah. And we would... So at the time, I was in a studio apartment because I was pretty much trying to save money to get the business up and going. And so my studio apartment was literally half home gym for the clients I was working with online and half the rest of my life. And Jack would come over and we would literally do a workout in our home gym in half a studio apartment. Like we literally had to take turns in the space where you do exercise. (laughs) With a whiteboard, we'd just tick off what we did. 
His, that room was a bedroom, a living room, and a gym room all in one. And an office, and a TV and an room, office. and a walk-in wardrobe. Exactly. So and lobby for guests. Yeah, so when I began, like, so I, so it was much, I should note that it was easier to do my access program during that time. Mm. Because when, when I had, had to get back to work and being more sociable, like, you know, you, it, it, you had to, like, put in those variables. Like, for instance... On days that I work, which uh, I have a job at a you know at a, at a restaurant, like you know bar and restaurant, I work uh, from uh, you know 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. and my job is always on my feet, so you know I'm not like sitting down or sedentary or anything like that. But the thing is that I work better on a, on a full stomach than an empty stomach, so I always make sure I have like a nice big breakfast before I begin work. However. What was helpful to me during my exercise program was having a very strict 12 to 8 eating program. So on certain days I had to manage, so nowadays I have to manage that. So it's not exactly, I can't really keep as consistent to the exercise and you know eating program that I would like during nowadays as opposed to uh, the era of lockdowns. Because like, you know, also after work, I'm maybe too tired to go home, uh, too tired when I get home to do go, go on the bike and such. So it just, it kind of throws a bit of a monkey wrench in the situation. But when I had all that free time during lockdowns, it was very easy to manage this uh, exercise program. Mm, very interesting. Good times back. I forgot about the studio apartment. Yeah, yeah. And the we, bush turkey saga in the Oh, backyard. yeah. <laughs> so we should all go into lockdown and we'll be better at exercising. Is that what you're saying? Well, it's like... Jack is endorsing a full-scale lockdown. No, no, no. I, I just I just remembered that. I, I, just, I just... It was... You have a thing where it's like... It's a great way to not... Like, to combat the potential damage that, like, lockdowns could do in the sense of, like, forcing you to live a very sedentary I lifestyle. All, I think we also, lockdown, a lot of people got through it by having a weird objective yeah. or mm. mission or side quest that they'd have yeah. just to focus on. Yeah. So I think less, that was Less yours. distractions as well, life yeah. distractions. So my exercise program was basically I would get up and I would do three sets of exercises that Tom uh, subscribed to me. Prescribed to me, uh, thirty uh, sit-ups, thirty push-ups, and thirty squats. I would do that, and then I would go for a nice long six to seven-kilometer walk around this giant bay that's near my house. And afterwards, uh, later that day, I would go on thirty minutes on a bike. I did that every day while also maintaining a very strict eight to twelve eating program, where I don't eat anything after those two, or like I only eat within those hours. Here's a fasting window so Jack doesn't eat anything until 12pm and then he stops eating at 8pm that's called intermittent fasting it yeah. works for some but you should always do your own research before doing it yeah, yeah. and so that plus all the exercises was actually very helpful in like seeing genuine results and yeah and then what happened at the end of the year oh well uh, end of the year I, I think I should uh, okay this is spoilers <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't gain anything back I didn't gain anything back it's just that like I thought like oh um, it's so end of the year 
during the holiday season, you usually, I thought to myself, okay, I'll take a break because you can't really repress your yearning for all the food you get, like ham and turkey and all that good stuff you get for Christmas. The problem is that like when you take too long of a break, it really gets hard to get back into the gist of it. The consistency's mm. gone. Mm. No, no, no. But you know, I am getting slowly back into the consistency part. It's just getting better. Like, here's how it is. I haven't regained any of the weight. If that's if that's what any of you are worried about, I lost. I I got down to 103, and I'm sticking to 103. Mm-hmm. It's just that, like, you know, I just you've plateaued. Well, I don't say I plateau, but I'm going to double on that thing on the next 10 kilos. Well, it's, I would. <laughs> I'll take off on that. It's just, it's right now, it's not, it's not so much that I'm like plateauing. It's just that like, I'm doing just enough to not gain weight, but yeah. I'm not doing enough to lose weight. That's the sure. thing. So I need to get, I need to find a way to get myself back into it because I want to get down to 93. If I'm 103, my next 10 kilos sh- should get me down to 103. So I have to, no, sorry, 93. Yeah. So I have to really, you know. I have to reprogram myself, but it's kind of hard nowadays because, one, you know, the the free time that like a lockdown would give you is gone, and also all these ob- other obligations. Because now I have I work here, I work at my other job, and I've got a lot of um, places, caring responsibilities. Caring responsibilities. Mm-hmm. I got a lot of things to do. So the only days I actually have free to myself, full day, is. Tuesday and Wednesday, hoping that no family member needs my babysitting babysitting services, which I just can't help but accept. <laughs> and uh, a Saturday once in a while, because <laughs> Tom and I do uh, joint caring on a Saturday for an for our elderly aunt. We take it in turns. So I think time would be um, a barrier for everybody in terms of exercise. Why don't we talk um, a moment for a moment about some typical barriers to health and fitness for those specifically on the spectrum? What did you find more challenging or difficult? I think Just starting out. I think it's kind of knowing. Uh, it's not so much like uh, I would say the thing that I had trouble with when I began. Uh, do you mean like the weight loss program or do you mean like exercise in general? In general? I would say like finding oh, out newness, new space, new ideas, new things. Well, I think for me, it wasn't so much like not feeling, oh, I belong or anything like that. It was more of a case of like just not knowing exactly like what exercises are best for certain uh, objectives. Like I remember when before I discovered the bike I think I texted you once and I asked you what's the best kind of exercise to get rid of like belly fat and I looked up I remember looking it up on Google and it said like a bike or cycling cycling is good for it and I texted you and I asked you is cycling a good method of getting rid of belly fat and when you said yes I thought oh good because I actually have an exercise bike at at my house so I thought to myself okay so so it was that but it was also like, and I think I mentioned this in the last episode, uh, not understanding how the body works in the sense of in, in the sense of fitness, mm-hmm. like not really understanding the mechanisms of metabolism. I found that it was hard to get you. My experience though is that it took a little while to get you around the idea of doing it. Like the ASPE procrastination, I think, was there, and it took a little while of like, we're gonna do it. It's gonna happen. We're gonna go to the gym. And you was you were comfortable with a we will but not now. Mm. Then it finally happened. Mm. But to your credit, you were pretty good once you actually got yourself in the gym and everything was 
Yeah, fine. Yeah. I think that's a really common barrier for a lot of people on the spectrum. So anything new, new environments, new PT. Um, new thinking, right? So like yep. thinking about how the body works is something new to work out. I actually wrote an article about this, about my like initial hesitations, about how like I kind of felt like... Um, you know, hesitant to the idea of adding something new to my life. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Totally fine. Just cut me off. I'm sorry. It's going to happen a million times over. So sorry, sorry. It, 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 I, social I, cues. <laughs> I am lucky with social cues. I apologize. <laughs> That's totally fine. Um, so some other challenges that we might see for those on the spectrum, or broadly speaking, would be, you know, sensory overload. So some gyms have got music blaring we've got weights crashing we've got a zumba class going on and that environment may not be conducive it's also, to but it's also, but even the exercises can be so much more new information on doing things with your body you've never done before yeah. or not really do it's just so much to learn as well like so it's just this whole there's no there's so few things in those workouts that are something that they do all the time and know really well it's, yeah. everything's new and it's also a matter of so it's it's new content being delivered, but it's also a matter of how is that being taught to the person. So, for most people on the autism spectrum, they are visual learners. So let's just say you've got um, a PT trying to deliver new information in a way that is not being presented visually. It means that part of the brain is just working in overdrive, and that person's having great difficulty in processing it. So, the the environment is just as important as how information is being delivered to the person. Any other barriers that we think are relevant? I think also expectations on the first workout as mm. well. I know with Jack, my first goal with getting him into exercising and in the gym wasn't around Jack having a good workout, just him feeling comfortable there. It took a little while before, like, Jack, now you're in a position where you can put in really great workouts, like, really go hard, but you weren't training like that from day one. It took a while before you sort of got comfortable, and it takes a while as well, especially with things like weightlifting, to get closer to the amount you could and should be lifting because of Mm -hmm. the, you're uncomfortable with the bar, you think it's going to fall on you, or you're not, "Mm, not sure about this, Mm -hmm. but over time, you get so comfortable holding things, lifting things, moving things, that you can then edge the the workload up uh, yep. to a more productive spot. So I know with Jack, it was comfortable understanding everything first, good mm-hmm. session second. Mm-hmm. And it's very much the same with the clients that I've got on the spectrum mm-hmm. as well, where we just focus on them feeling okay and comfortable in the space. And then we make the workouts progressively more rigorous over time. Yeah. But the rapport is more important. But me and Jack already had rapport, so that was fun. Yeah, you already knew him. But I th- I know what you do with some of your clients is, like, step one might just be doing a lap around the gym Literally or even just up. a drive-by. Show up. Show up. Yes. A huge win. Uh, step two might be putting it, you know, stepping foot inside the workout area. And then step three is I might actually just touch some of the equipment that I might like to, to work with. So... For many of our clients, it's very slow and very progressive, but that is huge progress. It very well could be the first time they've ever stepped foot into a gym. So let's um, move on to a couple of controversial autism-related topics. So, Jack, I know that you identify as having Asperger's, but that's actually not a recognized condition anymore. Yeah, you're not, you're not Asperger's, Jack. <laughs> you're not. That's not a real thing. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really keen to hear your thoughts on that. Well, it's like I, I'm not really into the identity in a sense of like, you know, I don't like wear it as like a mark of pride or like, you know, I, I, I emphasize that like, you know, I, like, it's not like I introduce myself saying I'm Jackson, I'm Asperger's. No, no, no. I, I see it as like a if I have to be giving myself a technical title on my, you know, 
learning, you know, uh, disability, if you would call it that, or difference, I would just say, yeah, I'm Asperger's, meaning I'm high-functioning autism. And seeing that that word has been around for so long, I just like, eh, so be it. Uh, the fact that they don't use it technically anymore, I understand that, but I think culturally people still use it because they use it as a marker. Mm-hmm. And I kind of like it, I, I kind of prefer it in a sense because for certain people it's better to have like that kind of marker to distinguish you compared to the other, the other variations of autism. Mm-hmm. Because for some people with Asperger's, you're just basically, you know, you're like the weird person or you're slightly awkward, you're slightly different, okay, but you're not like overtly severe. Okay. As compared to people with like more severe forms of autism, which makes them a bit like, you know, in, what's the word, nonverbal or nonverbal. Yeah, and so like I think for some people like, like myself for instance, like you know, just having that marker of Asperger's is a better way of like classifying myself in a different kind of category than other people in autism because mm. I don't because I it's. So for many, it really is a, a strong part of their identity. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it was removed from the DSM, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, which is where we get all of our information regarding, regarding diagnoses, uh, in 2013. So it was only really part of the DSM for 19 years. Now everybody falls under the one umbrella term of autism spectrum disorder and we have levels one, two and three and we don't use high functioning and low functioning anymore. It's all dictated by people's support needs. So Jack, you have low support needs whereas somebody with level three autism would be considered as having really high support needs. Mm. So it all comes under autism spectrum disorder but the D, the disorder, is another area that's quite topical because many will say... They're quite ordered. I don't feel disordered at all. <laughs> I'm actually more ordered. More exactly. Ordered. Mm. So um, many are fighting for it just to be called autism spectrum. Mm. Um, the other the other topic that's quite related to all of this is how we reference people on the autism spectrum. And the reason I say on the autism spectrum as a clinician is because um, Monash University did a really great study last year. Uh, they interviewed a whole heap of people on the autism spectrum and they had to rank from most, most, to, least offensive. most to least offensive how people reference them. And there's obviously no one clear answer here. There's plenty of people that prefer to be called autistic. There's other people that say... I'm a person before I am a diagnosis. So I'm on the autism spectrum or I have autism. At any rate, the one that came through as the least offensive. There's also a lot of people who don't care. There's a lot of people that don't care. There's a lot of people that care so very much about it. Um, So on the autism spectrum was the one that came through as the least offensive, which is why most clinicians tend to adopt that. But I know, Jack, you prefer autistic. Uh, well, I was just in the spectrum. Like, I understand people like like to use like nice sounding words. For me, I'm like I would. I'm just. I guess I'm stuck because I had Asperger's since for like almost. Uh, it's weird. You had it and then it just like got taken away from you. Yeah. Exactly like that. And I'm like Asperger. I'm like you're not that anymore. I'll probably be like the last generation to refer themselves as Asperger's because I think with it being less and less prescribed and less and less you know used by terminology, I think it just be it's more of a generational thing where eventually people will just stop using it and it will become like an archaic word that is no longer used. I guess, but I guess I'll be the last generation to like you know stop using it because I'm still using it for myself. You can do whatever you want, right? Exactly. That's exactly right. 
and everyone has so many different preferences on this, but it might be worth just touching on what it means to have autism, to have an autism diagnosis, just for those who don't know much about it. So there's a couple of criteria that needs to be met. So if you only have one of the following criteria, you don't have autism. You have to have you have to meet all of the following. So there needs to be some social communication and interaction challenges. They say deficits. I hate the word deficits. Challenges with certain social communication cues. So you might have difficulty with backward and forward conversation. So somebody might say to you, how's your weekend? And you might say, great, but you might not think to then say, and how was your weekend back at them? Mm. Or you might struggle to communicate verbally. You might use an iPad, for instance, or you might use... Uh, Auslan or some other signing um, as an example you might have difficulty with eye contact these are all areas that fall under this social communication and interaction deficit yeah reading social cues that's that's me yeah that's me too continue Uh, restricted repetitive patterns of behavior interests or activities okay check again (laughs) so what that means is that people on the autism spectrum tend to have maybe not not as wide a breadth of interests but the things that they are interested in are quite intense the whole special interest thing like it really seems to be that everyone thinks that if you have autism there's one thing that is your whole life yeah and you just line trains up all day every day which is how much truth is there in that is that is it like something where that is true for a lot or is it just complete hokey I, you know, in terms of the the clientele that I work with, I could tell you what each of them have a very strong interest in, and it might be one or two things. So I've never met somebody that doesn't have a particular. We don't call them special interests because there's nothing special about like trains, trains, for instance. It's just that you're really interested in them. So. Jack, for instance, do you, is there anything that you're particularly interested in? I know that you're very... Oh, dear. You love illus- oh, illustrating. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've got a lot and a lot and a lot of interests. It's hard to really pinpoint. Well, then that goes completely against that criteria, which is saying that you're, you've got... Well, the thing with me, my interests can be like completely mono at a time, where it's like I can get really obsessed with one thing. You can hyper-focus. Hyper-focus, fixate on it for as long as my interest keeps me. Then drop like a hat as if I never paid dad any was attention. Like that. Our dad, who was on the spectrum as well, I'd, I'd say dad was Aspie. Yeah, I would say you too. He, he did. Re- he Aspie was the term that we always had growing up. That's how we described Jack, but also dad as well was mm-hmm. Aspie. Mm-hmm. So, um, but dad, who was Aspie, he was famous for like he would so sometimes he would read a bit, a, read a book all through the night. Oh wow! Without sleeping, mm-hmm. and then wake up the next day and just go back to work. <laughs> Like, he would, he could read. Just that intense. He could actually read. And he'd be able to recall it, too. Like, he read it. Yeah. So... Like it was close to an eidetic memory. Goodness gracious. Yeah, he was a freak. Was wow. So cool. A few other things. Um, so, autism must be present in early developmental years. So, what that means is that you can't develop autism as an adult. You might be diagnosed as an adult, which is very common these days, given that the world is becoming a little bit more understanding of what it means to have autism. So adults are actually going and getting a diagnosis and realising where they fit in the world after feeling that they... Uncle. Your uncle. Um, So... It's a neurodevelopmental disorder, which means it's all to do with the way that the brain develops early on in life. And the deficits that we see in those on the autism spectrum can't be explained by deficits. intellectual. I know, well, deficits, Erica. I know that I'm just. This is what they say. Hate speech. Continue. Okay. 
the challenges can't be explained by intellectual disability or global developmental delay. So it means it's sometimes like a, a process of elimination to come up with the okay. criteria, which is, it's all a little bit so I've got two out of four. Does that make me autistic? You have some autism. Sorry, does that make me put me on the autism spectrum? No. So you, well... Jack thinks that I might be. Uh, Erica, how many vaccines does somebody need to have in order to become <laughs> autistic? I really thought really about the internet. You know what? How, many, how, many, how it, many vaccines are necessary? Like, what's, what's the criteria? And can Jack get how more? Many? Can, Jack oh. make, can Jack get more autism if you took more vaccines? Like, for instance, I'm on, autism, I'm on autism one. How many more vaccines do I need to get to get to two or three? I did not sign up for the autism um, <laughs> vaccination. <laughs> just the jokes Jack was sending me when he was getting vaccinated for COVID. <laughs> so, for those who don't, also, but it's, it's like, but. The link of autism to vaccines, that's not ancient. That's like living memory. Yep. That was a, a legitimate conversation that was being had in the public And people square. are still 2004, The Lancet published, I think it was Andrew Wakefield is his name? Maybe. I think it was Andrew Wakefield. I could be wrong. But um, but he basically pushed and uh, you know, basically wrote a art or, or an article in The Lancet, which is a very high esteem, you know, peer-reviewed yeah, yeah. journal. But basically said that there may be a correlation between the rate of vaccination and the rate of autism. So ego autism is caused, or like you know that vaccines have a higher likelihood chance to cause autism. Original paper on it. That's basically what. That, that's basically the that gist guy, of the. The guy um, came back and said I was wrong. Oh yeah, he. And he, he also did. said he I was also. Manipulated or funded or he it was for the whole thing. Recanted, he uh, completely repudiated. He recanted, repudiated. The Lancet also. I was wrong. I was wrong. But that did not stop the still. And that did not stop the movement. That did not stop the people being like, no, we don't care what the person who we base our entire opinion says. We are still going to keep to it. So that was all based on an ingredient called thimerosal, which was what was said to cause autism, which hasn't actually been in any vaccination since 1995. Ah, I see. So, anyway, we look, we don't have time to talk about this. Thanks for bringing it up. Um, just for getting my blood to boil. It, it is, it is. Particularly because we're living in the world of but controversial like, vaccinations. I, I feel like, like autism is like, I'm so glad that it's more in the public square and conversation and awareness, but it's also now just like there's more misconceptions about it because of it, mm. because it's been re- represented by more mm. people and things that maybe don't have the best grasp on it. Absolutely. Like, like it's almost becoming vogue in some sense to make a character autistic, but all they're doing is reinforcing like the same three characteristics. You know what I mean? Over and over it's, again. It's funny because the characters that are like that are supposed to be presented as autistic always come off as like a robotic, inaccurate yeah. version. If the characters who aren't supposedly diagnosed or labeled or identified as autistic always end up being much more accurate representations of autism. Like. Like, for instance, like, a perfect example of this is, like, in a lot of... I think there was, like, that new show about, like, the doctor who has autism or oh, yeah, yeah. certain or movies and such. There are characters that have autism. And it always come off as, like, even high-functioning autism, like Asperger's, it always come off as, like, you know, robotic, you know... Super unemotional, which also... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, characters that aren't diagnosed were not presented as such, like Hank Hill from the King of the Hill animated series. That is the most, like... 
he reminds me of me in the sense of just being an oblivious like it's funny like we watch like, it on Sundays and Jack can't go three seconds without telling him he's autistic like he just that, every like, time it's Hank like, Hank Hill is so autistic maybe those that are being written into scripts they're just trying too hard well, yeah, yeah. Well, I think when you're trying to be representation quote mm-hmm. unquote it comes off as a bit like almost car- caricaturist without unintendedly mm-hmm. characteristic while simply just writing a character and just like it you're able to it, it convey autism or certain characteristics of autism unconsciously and it doesn't yeah, so I, much accurate I, I sort of don't like it when the, when the character is on the autism spectrum the point of them is to be on the autism spectrum which I don't like I like it when they are but that's not the point yes. Yes. and it's just yeah. it's just them like, you know what I mean going through things I, I don't know if if um, the people who make King of the Hill intended Hank Hill to be autistic, but he is the most authentic. He's up there. He's pretty. He, he is, in my opinion, the most authentically accurate version of an autistic or high-functioning Asperger's character I've ever seen in, on television. Everyone else just comes off as like a cringy, you know, character. character. Yeah. Anyway, we took over. Sorry. What's new? <laughs> uh, I'm conscious of the time. We're fine. Go. Are we okay? So we won't delve too deep into why Asperger's was such a controversial figure um, and is believed by many to be a monster, but there's a bit of... um, Jack was named after him. Uh, What we might do is just quickly touch upon why autism prevalence is actually going through the roof or if, in fact, it is. So I I grew up in the 80s and 90s and I now think back to some of the children that I went to school with who were just considered naughty or weird and I now realise that they would have met the criteria for autism. So, yes, there are some factors in terms of our lives that are impacting prevalence. So, for instance, where ha- um, paternal age is one area where there's an increased likelihood of autism and we're having babies later and later. But people often think it's just the mum's age that is a factor where we know it's the dad's. There's an epilepsy medication that pregnant women can take, which can increase the likelihood. So there certainly are lifestyle indicators there that increase prevalence but generally speaking the reason that more and more people are getting diagnosed is because we understand autism more and more and I've studied autism now for 15 years but there's still so much I don't know and we we as an industry don't know and I think what that's why the space is so fascinating because you think you've got autism worked out and then somebody will walk through the door that just debunks everything that you thought that you knew. Um, So we've talked a little bit about the levels, but every single person with autism presents so differently. And that's what makes it such an interesting space to be a part of. So it is more that the criteria for receiving a diagnosis has changed. Um, the, The criteria has actually been developed around males and that's why a lot of females were excluded and often misdiagnosed with something like an eating disorder or an anxiety disorder when in fact they had autism it's just that it presents a little bit differently in girls so look there are a whole myriad of factors um and but ultimately yes that i think it's increased 1150 percent since 1995 so we actually do a whole topic on this in our weflex um we did more than one. We did we, a few. Well, we did a one on communication. We've done some, um, a module on sensory. sensory challenges. We've done behaviours of concern. We've done autism. So basically our, our PTs are equipped and ready to go. I think it's more just um, we're giving them the tools and the flexibility to just roll with it and just yeah. embrace the person that comes through the door. Yeah. It's a big part of it. It was funny because so many of these things I thought was just like Jack and Dad, but mm. it was actually like... The, the needs that are 
pretty bit more common people on the autism spectrum like always punching uh, <laughs> annoying me punching me <laughs> yeah that's not just people yeah, on the uh, autism spectrum that's all of us that's yeah maybe that's a brother thing <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I think we've covered a fair bit of ground. We're trying to keep our episodes as close to 30 minutes as possible so that you don't tune out. Um, Thank you, Jackson. Anytime. Every time, I'm afraid. (laughs) Anytime. (laughs) Anytime, Erica. Anytime, Thomas. Thank you for a wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed it. We've really enjoyed your insights. And we will see you next episode of You're Not Special. See you later. Bye. Bye. If you have any concerns or queries around anything that we discussed, please don't hesitate to reach out to the WeFlex team. To keep our lawyers happy, we would like to note that whilst we are talking about health, fitness and whatever random BS we stumble into, your health is ultimately your responsibility. Please seek out personalised health advice from people who actually know about these things. Seriously, if we are the only people you are listening to for health or life advice, you have much bigger problems. Please, for the love of God, don't ignore your medical professionals and listen to us instead. If this episode has been triggering for you, we strongly recommend contacting Lifeline on 13